This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 362, April the 30th, 1996. In this session, we will continue hearing from one of our staff members, Sam Blumenfeld, on our contemporary education problems. Since education and law are the two key areas in any society which reveal its religion, it's very important that we be concerned with these areas. Again, it will be Billy Welch, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rushdoony, and myself who will be listening to and uh, asking questions of Sam. Will you go ahead now, Sam? Yes. Uh, I referred to the um, Mark Tucker letter to Hillary yes. Clinton at the beginning of the, the last tape. I just want to read to you three paragraphs in that letter so that you get an idea that these are real people who really believe in taking over. This was written right after the election of Bill Clinton. <clears throat> uh, it's dated November 11th, 1992, and he says, Dear, dear Hillary, I still can't believe you won, but mm -hmm. utter delight that you did pervades all the circles in which I move. I met last Wednesday in David Rockefeller's office with him, John Scully, Dave Barham, and David Hazelcorn. It was a great celebration. Both John and David R. were more expansive than I have ever seen them, literally radiating happiness. My own view and theirs is that this country has seized its last chance. The subject we were discussing was what you and Bill should do now about education, training, and labor market policy. Following that meeting, I chaired another in Washington on the same topic. Those present at the second meeting included Tim Barnacle, David, uh, Dave Barham, Mike Cohen, Dave Hornbeck, Hillary Pennington, Andy Platner, Loren, uh, Lauren Resnick, Betsy Brown-Ruzzi, uh, Bob Schwartz, Mike Smith, and Bill Spring. Shirley Malcolm, Ray Marshall, and Susan McGuire were also invited. Though these three were not able to be present at last week's meeting, they have all contributed by telephone to the ideas that follow. Ira Magazina was also invited to this meeting. Our purpose in these meetings was to propose concrete actions that the Clinton administration could take between now and the inauguration. In the first 100 days and beyond, the result from where I sit was really exciting. We took a very large leap forward in terms of how to advance the agenda on which you and we have all been working, a practical plan for putting all the major components of the system in place within four years by the time Bill has to run again." Mm -hmm. unquote. So there you can see how these people work. Yes. You see directly with the White House, got to get the legislature done. And the names of these people, <clears throat> while they might not mean very much to our listeners, uh, David Hornbeck, for example, was responsible for putting OBE in Kentucky. Lauren Resnick has been working on assessment tests at the University of Pittsburgh. All of these people are key planners who are in charge of some component of this major organizational uh, reorganization, uh, education reorganization. You have John Scully of um, Macintosh, of Apple Computer. You have David Rockefeller, Jr., representing the Rockefeller interests in all of this. So you see that this is not, you know, these things just don't come out of nowhere. There are human beings <clears throat> with specific agendas who are doing all of this. And if you read down the Board of Trustees of the National Center on Education and the Economy, you find you've got John Scully as the chairman. Who just got fired, incidentally, because he practically took Apple into extinction. Right. <clears throat> That's right. Great manager, he. Mario Cuomo is the is the uh, honorary chair. James B. Hunt, Jr., former governor of North Carolina, is vice chairman. You've got other uh, big uh, 
corporate executives. You have Vera Katz of the Oregon State Legislature. She is known as the furthest left-wing uh, legislator there. Ira Magazina uh, and others, David Rockefeller Jr., Hillary Clinton. At that time, she was just a, uh, she was with the law firm, the law firm in, in Arkansas. Why is this plan being implemented, being voted on by conservative Republicans? You see, that's the big mystery. That I cannot figure that out. Why don't the conservatives come up with their own plan? Which conservatives Why? are we talking about? We well, talking I mean the Republican Party. Yeah. I'm talking wow. about the Republican Party that's supposed to be in opposition mm -hmm. to this sort of thing. Uh, you know, if the Republican Party wanted to come up with its own education plan, they can create their own national center. They can have their own board of trustees. They can have their own commission that will work on a curriculum for the public schools or a, a reform program. Where is it? No, Why doesn't it exist? They're not conservative. They're only slightly less liberal than the Democrats. <laughs> well, that's what Dabney would say, wouldn't he? Exactly right. You know. But uh, that's what's so puzzling, uh, and uh, that's what's that's what is that's the question that now a lot of conservatives are asking. A lot of true conservatives: Why is this happening? How how is it happening? And why have not we been informed by our own people that they are pushing this as if there were no tomorrow? It's a sellout. Exactly, it's a sellout. That's why you really can't trust the Democrats or the Republicans in this sense, because the key is in education reform. What are the two parties doing? You know what they're doing? The exact same thing. And uh, that's not what the American people want. That certainly is not what I want. And uh, take, for example, this, this uh, computer system that's been in the works now since the 70s. This is not new. It's been funded over and over again by Congress. And now it has reached the point where it's ready to go online. Which Mr. Perot built, incidentally. I don't know if Perot built this particular system. The Commerce Department, Social Security Administration, and all these now are intertied now as one large area yes. of work. Well, this computer comes out of the National Center for Education Statistics, which is part of the Department of Education. And uh, now who will have access to this uh, information? They list it in the, in the <coughs> data, <coughs> in, the, um, uh, in the book. School employees who have a need to know. Two, other schools to which a student is transferring. Certain government officials in order to carry out lawful functions. Four, appropriate parties in connection with financial aid to a student. Five, organizations doing certain studies for the school. Six, accrediting organizations. Seven, individuals who obtained court orders or subpoenas. Eight, persons who need to know in cases of health and safety emergencies. Nine, state and local authorities to whom disclosure is required by state laws adopted before November 19, 1974. So, just about anybody who wants the information can get it. Right. It's obvious. <clears throat> Does a government of a free people keep in its vaults a computer, a data bank, of information, of personal information on every single individual. Now, if they had that when Rush was going to school, they would have all of that, all of those test scores that you made on, the, mm -hmm. on those IQ tests would be in the record there. They'd have a complete record of everything that Rush had done or I had done over the years. It's interesting that my school record, high school record, was on a little card. You know, they had each grade with your final grade, you know, A, B, C, D, a little card, that's all you needed. You didn't need this gigantic computer that was going to gather all of this personal information about you, because this is the key to the control of everybody, is the information. If they have that information on you, they can control you. Well, everybody thinks <coughs> that technology is kind of a... Uh, well, it's a two-edged sword. 
Exactly, but if it can be misused, it will be misused. And these people would like to misuse it. Yes, very true. Uh, and uh, how do you fight it? Well, you just have to get people uh, involved. Uh, take, for example, my friend Charlotte Isabel, who worked for the she worked for the Department of Education years ago. She was a senior staff member, and she had access to all of these grant proposals all of these grants that were going out to these different labs, universities, etc., and she saw what was being planned. Now, when she sounded the alarm back in the 80s, nobody believed her. They said, well, we'll worry about it when it's being implemented. But obviously, these people have been working on all of this for many years, going back to the 50s with Benjamin Bloom and his taxonomy of educational objectives. So. Uh, it's been in the works quite some time, <clears throat> and now finally it's coming to the surface. We see the tentacle. It's like that monster in, in the uh, in the Scot the Scottish lake. You know what is it? Loch the Loch Ness. Occasion. Now it's coming to the surface. You can see its tentacles, and those of us who are a little more uh, inv uh, uh, who are better informed than others uh, are are. You know, sounding the alarm. We're saying, "Hey, wake up! This thing is really bad," and and uh, it's got to be stopped. It has to be stopped. Well, so we've talked about the problem, Sam. Now let's talk about what can we do about it. What constructively can be done about these problems? Well, of course, the the most important thing is to get Christian children out of the public schools. Amen. To get all children out of the public schools. But Christian children in particular, and I don't know why certain important Christian leaders who have vast audiences have not yet uh, sounded the alarm to all of their, their constituents, all of their patrons, and told them to get the kids out. There are, you know, these are very fine Christian leaders, and you know their names. I'm not going to uh, name anybody, but you know who they are. They are leaders of major Christian organizations who encourage parents to uh, talk to their teachers, you know, and, and go to the school board and, and, and run for, for, uh, run for school uh, board and all of that. And the school boards are simply going to be, uh, you know, they're just not even going to have any power at all. I mean, maybe they'll designate parking space, but that's about it. And Sam, we want to make clear that this is a fundamental issue. This is not, this is not a tangential issue. No, it's this fundamental. Is a fundamental issue. It certainly is fundamental for the Christian community because if their children are entrapped in this system, and incidentally, once you get on the computer, how do you get off of it? You know. And incidentally, they also have a, a designation for homeschoolers on this computer program. It's not as if they're, they're leaving them out. They have a special, um, a special designation for the uh, homeschooler. Let me see if I can uh, find it here in my notes. Uh, but they're, they're, they're not going to admit anyone because, uh, uh, for example, um, um, they will have, um, you see, under the uh, address contact information, we find code 056, non-resident attendance rationale. Hmm. The reason that the student attends a school outside of his or her usual attendance area, and that there are 10 subcategories, including 07, which is homeschooling. Hmm. The student is rece receiving educational instruction offered in a home environment as regulated by state law for reasons other than health. <clears throat> then they have private schools are also included under the school information code 076. Uh, includes a subcategory private non-religiously affiliated school, private religiously affiliated school, and under school type, you find subcategories alternative and Montessori. Then you have a category discontinuing schooling reason. We find subcategory 19, religion. The student left school because of religious convictions. 
Then under non-entrance information, we find Category 116, reason for non-entrance in local or secondary school, under which we find subcategory 3, homeschooling, which says, the individual is receiving educational services offered in a home environment for reasons other than health. Uh, then the, there's another subcategory, religious reason. The individual or his or her parent guardian has religious convictions that prohibit participation in the educational program of the school or education agency, and the individual is not receiving approved instruction elsewhere. So they're going to include everybody. They will know who the homeschoolers are. They will know mm -hmm. what category of homeschooling or Christian schooling you uh, you fit in. It's a far cry from the kind of country we were when I was young. I know that uh, many, many country doctors when I was a child never bothered to file a birth certificate. They did not regard it as uh, anything important or their attitude was what business of the uh, counties is it if a child is born? The parents know it. They're the ones that count. Well, now you have to have a, a mandatory Social Security card when kids grow right. And the next move is that they want to implant a, a micro-dot-sized uh, computer chip that will contain all of the basic information. and. Uh, parents are being lulled into this idea of having their kids fingerprinted on the idea that they'll be easier to locate in case they are abducted or wander off, but the you know, other side of it is also that they are gaining the acquiescence of parents of having their kids labeled, um, and uh, the, the microdot chip implanted under the skin is the next move. And you're talking about the barcode. The barcode is already technologically obsolete. Uh, the uh, the microchip uh, it can be read uh, very easily and uh, doesn't cost very much and uh, it will probably be uh, mandatory at the time of birth. They'll be put in at the hospital. Parents won't even be aware that it's uh, uh, put in. You mentioned Social Security. <clears throat> that started a lot of record keeping in this country because <clears throat> They took down everybody's name and uh, birth date and other information. I recall that very vividly because I would occasionally see this man who was a bit of a playboy. He was a widower. I think he was in his mid-forties, but he looked a good ten years younger. And... Uh, he didn't have a birth certificate like a great many others, so he thought he was smart, and he bragged about it. He put down that he was 35. He said, this will be my <laughs> official age, and I'll uh, do better with the girls from now on, because if I tell them I'm 45, uh, they're not as interested. Well, I didn't see much or anything of him, but years later, I heard that uh, he had reached 65, and he was very miserable <laughs> because he had 10 more years to go in reality mm -hmm. before he could collect his Social Security. <laughs> so his lie caught up with him. But you see, you could do that sort of thing in those days. And uh, the lack of records meant that you were anonymous. You could go to another part of the country, create your own past. I know on the Indian Reservation, uh, on the edge of it in the mining camp, there were a lot of people who were known to be fugitives from the law and who had created uh, synthetic uh, past for themselves. Mm -hmm. And as long as they were law-abiding, nobody bothered them. Well, you know, you're able to look back over a span of years. That's maybe one-third of the entire history of this country. So this country is not old. 
It isn't, and we're headed so quickly toward a totalitarian system. It's just amazing how how far you know how much has been done in such a short period of time to create this, this the structure, the superstructure. Uh, and it's interesting though that totalitarianism should be coming through the education system mm-hmm. because it's it's state owned, state financed. Absolutely. It has a lien on everybody's property. That's right. It's it's the one it's the one institution in America that is so embedded and the one institution that people you know believe in whether they like it or not that oh well you mean there wasn't public education before you know, 1840 I mean they think it, it's in the Constitution they think that yeah. you know every totalitarian regime in history has has started with the young yeah exactly. So it stands to reason that if they want to get their totalitarian system, they would use the education system as the means to do it, because they already have the taxpayers' cash flow coming into it. It's much more difficult to start a new system of cash flow from the taxpayer than to use one that already exists and which has constantly been used by the by the powers that be to extract more and more and more from the public. Uh, and uh, what little resistance has come from the public has been negligible compared to the amount that they're getting. Mussolini introduced very, very early when he took over in the 20s, early 20s, mandatory school attendance because he knew that was the way to control the citizens of the future. And that's why in uh, the next 25 years, he had a solid hold on the Italian population. Well, also in in Nazi Germany, the Weimar Republic practically prepared the school system for Hitler Mm -hmm. because they were already phasing out private schools during the Weimar period. And so when Hitler took over, all he had to do was have the teachers go hire Hitler they were in business yes. and all they had to do was change the curriculum and the system worked perfectly for his purposes every totalitarian regime has used government education as the means of control that's true in Russia in Cuba yes. uh, as a matter of fact whenever the communists take over that's where they put their emphasis and in fact in, in Beijing in, in the communist regime they have these records on every student but it's in a uh, paper form. It's in a kind of a loose-leaf book. I remember reading an article from uh, in the New York Times in which they spoke about how this record went with you wherever you went in life, that it was a full, complete record of, of everything about you, mm-hmm. that it accompanied you. And if you wanted to say, for example, to leave the country or something like that, uh, that, that record might stand in the way. So we have computers, so it's going to be easier for us to do the same thing, you see. Uh, there's this conceit that the computer is going to give them the power, is going to give them the, the, the ability to control, while at the same time the computer is going to loosen up things. Uh, you know, there, are, there is such a thing as... as uh, sabotaging even computers. Right. The most arrogant people in the world are engineers because yeah. they think they can control every aspect of a particular function. Uh, you know, I've watched it all my life and uh, uh, arrogance feeds on arrogance. It perpetuates itself up to a point until the system collapses. Uh, you just, they're going to run out of money. Uh, you know, the one common thread you can you can look at throughout history as the innate perversity of the human mind. Yes. I mean, if uh, people will disregard God's laws in the face of overwhelming uh, uh, judgment uh, to the point of losing their lives, uh, you know, there are always people who are going to turn away from the pack. <clears throat> you know, when you were mentioned when you started out, Sam, about the human resource development system. The acronym is herds. You know, they want a herd mentality That's here to get good. everybody going in the same direction. But a herd can also turn around and trample you. You know. The, well, let's hope that this herd does. Yeah. <laughs> but um, 
Tucker says in the same letter, he says, um, radical changes in attitudes, values, and beliefs are required to move any combination of these agendas. At the narrowest level, the agenda cannot be moved unless there is agreement among the governors, the president, and the Congress. Bill's role at the Charlottesville summit leads naturally to a reconvening of that group, perhaps with the addition of key members of Congress and others. Of course, that was the latest Gerstner meeting, which was supposed to do that. But he says, but we think that having an early summit on the subject of the whole human resources agenda would be risky for many reasons. Better to build on Bill's enormous success during the campaign with national talk shows in school gymnasiums and the bus trips. This way, Bill can be sure that the agenda is his and he can go into it with a groundswell of support behind him. Unquote. So you see how these people plan everything, every minute detail of, of what they want to get and how they're going to get it. And here are, here are we... You know, when, when Mark Tucker set up his, his national center in Rochester, New York, uh, it was as if the Messiah had come to Rochester. And this is what the Rochester Times Union wrote in August of 1988, quote, An aura of the prophet surrounds Mark Tucker when he walks through the oversized walnut doors of his new education research center. There is his full beard, his long, dark hair streaked gray, there is the sound of his upbeat voice in the immaculate white-walled room lined with century-old fireplaces and towering wood-framed windows. This, the National Center on Education and the Economy, will be Mark Tucker's pulpit beginning today. It will fill with eager research assistants and influential educators, and the waiting and the watching will begin. Both national and local educators other researchers, school administrations, and politicians will be watching to see if the center becomes the spiritual headquarters of education reform, creating policy for presidential candidates and the nation's workforce. I love it when yes. liberals get overconfident, because that's when you can hit them in their soft underbelly. <laughs> Sam, uh, what more can you tell us about this? whole campaign to push us into socialism via education goals 2000 well it's it's all based on humanism it's all based on an acceptance of evolution as gospel uh, it's based on uh, the uh, dumbing down techniques of uh, of uh, mastery learning which is the uh, Skinnerian methods of teaching, you know, the Pavlovian conditioning techniques. <coughs> In other words, it's going to dumb down the nation further. You're going to have a, an even greater decline in true literacy. Uh, you will have people who perhaps can read at a uh, comic book level, you know, mm -hmm. if even that much. Uh, they will not know much of history or geography. They certainly won't know much about American history because the standards are now being put in place and the standards that came out of, is it uh, UCLA, the, the fellow who was working on the history standards, it was so ridiculous. There was more, more on Marilyn Monroe than there was on George Washington. And they had many mentions of, of Joe McCarthy, terrible person, Joe McCarthy. So the, uh, the, the students are going to get only a politically correct view of the world, uh, skewed so that uh, they will be uh, easily controllable, uh, trainable, manageable. Uh, the literacy skills will be, uh, if, if not whole language, some other version of it, because they're not going to go back to intensive systematic phonics, because that means uh, getting back to logos. And that's the last thing they want to do is get back to the true word. Uh, they don't want the children to be able to read. And, of course, that was always part of Dewey's master plan, was to shift the emphasis away from high literacy, from knowledge of the word, to the uh, effective domain. 
to an emphasis on attitudes and values and beliefs and reorganize, reorganizing the minds of students. So this this system is 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 not going to uh, produce what the American people want. It's totally incompatible with with the pr- precepts of a free society. It has nothing to do with with a free society. It's going to change America radically. And I can't see Americans accepting it unless they've been so brainwashed and so completely uh, sold a bill of goods and are so helpless and are so needy of the government to do everything for them that they're willing to accept it. But uh, you're going to have more and more people homeschooling, more and more parents taking their kids out of the schools. And... uh, you think there's going to be a rebellion then by the parents? Well, there is a quiet rebellion. Absolutely. I mean, the homeschooling movement itself is a is a is a, a movement of rebellion against the the powers that be, and and more and more parents are becoming aware. I mean, that's the beauty of of attending homeschool conferences when you meet parents with very young kids who say, "My child will never see the inside of a yes, public right. school," because many of today's young parents have gotten enough of the bad stuff out of public schools to know how bad they are. In other words, people who went to school in the 60s and 70s, they were already pretty bad in the 60s and 70s. I have encountered, uh, going across country, homeschool mothers who are barely literate. And yet, in a year, they, uh, they were not only literate, but they're grammar and their speaking ability had improved because in beginning with phonics they learned it yes in teaching their children reading they learned how to read and so the, the parents have been re-educated in the course of educating their children that's that's a very important point is that the parents are learning even more than the children uh, they're re-educating themselves. They're getting the education they never got. You even have some parents who are learning Latin, believe it or not, mm-hmm. uh, as part of homeschooling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it's a r- remarkable phenomenon, this uh, homeschool movement. Billy, did you um, want to say something? Well, I was just going to say that um, a lot of people are homeschooling now because of the dangers in the public school. Oh, they're yes. afraid to send their children to school because they're intimidated in the bathrooms, in in the halls, on the school ground, and uh, it's it's a dangerous situation, and I don't care what community that you're in, whether it's in a small town like Prescott, or, of course, the the cities are impossible. Well, yeah, but sure. The violence, the the guns, the uh, weapons. uh, Exactly. The assaults. Our schools have become very dangerous places for kids. They're no longer the safe haven, and uh, so from that point of view alone, you, you have parents removing their children uh, because of the first the academic academic reasons they're not learning anything. Two, because of moral reasons. You know, sex education. Uh, wherever you have sex education, you have increased sexual activity. I mean, it just stands to reason. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure that one out. Then you have the spiritual dangers, undermining Christianity, the, the children's Christianity is being undermined, and of course the, the, the violence, the physical violence. What's going through the minds of the public school teachers? I mean, they're kind of hoist their own petard here. They're creating these these uh, psychopaths that uh, commit these crimes in the public schools and they're just as subject to the dangers as the children that attend these schools. I mean, if these people have got an IQ above sea level, they've got to figure out that they're generating the problem that's going to be their own undoing. Uh, The teachers aren't always at fault. Uh, They can't touch the kids. They can't discipline them. If they send them to the office to be disciplined, um, they usually just send them back, and uh, the administrators they have they have no control either. I mean, it's to the point where you have um, chaos. It's chaos. Yeah. I think uh, we should jump in here and mention that Sam has just completed a book on this topic, 
of OBE. And uh, Sam, would you maybe discuss that and talk yeah, about uh, how it could be obtained? Outcome-based education. Well, the title of the book is The Whole Language OBE Fraud, Whole Language Slash OBE Fraud. And it covers the history of the reading problem and how it evolved into OBE and what's behind OBE. I, I mean, what's behind whole language? There is a political agenda, <clears throat> a social agenda, an ideological agenda behind all of these things, which parents are unaware of. It's not merely a, a new way to teach children to read. First of all, it doesn't even teach them to read. It teaches them to guess, and it teaches them uh, to look at each word as if it were a, a holistic um, you know, uh, configuration, like Chinese. And when you do that, of course, you train children to look at words as if they were uh, holistic configurations. Uh, they develop a holistic reflex, which means that they look at all words as uh, whole designs. And when they do that, then they develop a blockage against seeing words in their phonetic structure. Because first of all, they haven't been taught very much phonics. What little phonics they've been taught is simply parked up in their heads as information that may or may not be used. Now, once they develop that holistic reflex, they are dyslexic. That's what dyslexia is. And, of course, the Russians, <laughs> the psychologists are very much uh, in the know concerning reflexology. I mean, that's what, that's what Pavlov was working on. And he and his colleagues discovered that you could cause behavioral disorganization by creating two opposing reflexes. Didn't the Russians throw that out about a year ago? Oh, no, I mean, this is this is a psychological uh, experimentation that's in the books. Oh, but I mean, the reading method, the... Oh, no, well, they got rid of look say back in the 1930s. The Rush, you see, Dewey had convinced uh, Lenin's wife to adopt a progressive system of education. In the early days of the revolution, she thought that was a great idea, so they used the whole word method. Could you give the title of your book and the publisher, his address, and the price? Okay. The, uh, the title of the book is uh, The Whole Language OBE Fraud. That's uh, being published by the Paradigm Company in Boise, Idaho. The easiest way to get hold of the book is to call 1-208-322-4440. That's 1-208-322-4440. I believe the price is 19.95. Then your newsletter, uh, if you could tell oh, yes. people how much it is for a year's subscription, right. the name of the newsletter, and uh, how to order it. Uh, it's the Blumenfeld Education Letter. It's a monthly newsletter um, containing much of the information that I discussed tonight. And it's about eight pages? Eight pages, yes. And I keep it at eight pages because I want mm -hmm. people to read it as soon as they open it. Mm -hmm. Usually if you get a newsletter that's very thick, you'll put it aside mm -hmm. and say, well, I'll read it later on. And then, of course, other things get piled on top mm -hmm. of it. But I wanted a newsletter that people will open and read immediately because it was short enough and succinct enough. So the Blumenfeld Education Letter is $36 a year for the 12 issues. Uh, and it can also be obtained by calling the same number, 1-208-322-4440. In fact, anyone listening to this uh, tape who would like to get a free sample copy of the newsletter uh, could do so by just calling that number and telling them, uh, telling my publisher that I mentioned that they could get a free sample copy by simply calling. Very good. And uh, so I, I, I've been tracking all of this for quite some time, as you know, Rush. I've been dealing with the school reform programs and finding out all about these things, and it's been a revelation because this information has not been readily available to the public. For example, when they had the Charlottesville meeting back in 1988, the governors, you know, had the so-called education summit. Bill Clinton was then governor of, of Arkansas and was a very important player in that summit. 
Little did any of us know that the program that was being adopted by those governors was Mark Tucker's program. Mm -hmm. And little did we know that the program that George Bush was promoting in the State of the Union message was Mark Tucker's program. Mm -hmm. And you ask yourself, why is a Republican governor promoting a program concocted by far-left liberals? And now we see the whole pattern. We see what's happened since then, how all of this has grown and developed, and finally we're getting the truth. And how this letter from Mark Tucker to Hillary got into the hands of our side, nobody knows. Mm -hmm. All we know is we've got one Xerox copy after another. I got a call from a lady who wanted a pristine, clear copy of the letter. And I said, you'd better call Mark Tucker's office. Maybe they'll give you a pristine, clear, you know, copy of the letter. But all we have is a Xerox of a fax and a fax of a Xerox. So we take it. But we've got the information. That's the most important thing is now we know who is doing this, what their plans are, who is in back of it what it amounts to, it amounts to a totalitarian system of education and that it's our duty now to stop it now that we know what's in it and what it's all about. Readers of your newsletter, of course, have been kept well informed on this. I'd like to call attention to something that really uh, pleases me because very often, unconsciously, things reveal how people feel. A while back, I don't recall where in the country it was, I met someone at a meeting who was in real estate who said, uh, in most communities now, you no longer advertise when you are selling a home uh, proximity to school. That used to be routine now it's uncommon. In some communities, it's still oh, yes. is a plus. But by and large, being close to a school is being close to a lot of uh, rowdy kids and trouble. Oh yes. So uh, home buyers are not attracted to going to see a house if it is advertised as close to a school. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and. Uh in the old days, that was a, a big thing. They would say that this town has the best schools, you know. Mm-hmm. A particular suburb would advertise that. As a matter of fact, my friends in Concord, Massachusetts, moved to Concord because it re- was reputed to have, quote, the best schools. And their little boy was in first grade, and they were destroying him with whole language. And they got hold of me, and I tutored him, and it was took a lot of work to undo the damage that they had done to this six-year-old. And so they, they are now homeschooling, but they realize that that was a joke, this business of the schools doing a wonderful job. In one major city, uh, one of the things that hurt the schools was a teacher's strike. <laughs> and... Uh, parents were shocked as they drove by the school and saw the students picketing and saw what the teachers looked like. So many, many of the male teachers had hair way down below their shoulders. They looked scruffy. They were not uh, neatly dressed. And uh, the old-time teacher, very properly dressed, very much a lady or a gentleman, was no longer in sight. As a matter of fact, the people now in the colleges of education, the professors, they're all the 60s hippies. That's where they went to. I mean, they just, just didn't disappear. The radicals have become the status quo. The radicals have become the status quo in the education system. And they are determined to finally get their what they want, their utopia, through uh, through education. And they control the colleges of education and what the teachers learn. That's why the system cannot be changed or reformed. You have to just get rid of it. Uh, it it's 
totally corrupt from top to bottom. There's no way you can possibly reform the system or take back the schools, as some yes. conservatives like to say. Well, one of the things that uh, made it possible for the public schools to succeed and to supplant the uh, Christian schools or uncommon schools that preceded them was the fact that in those early days there was almost no teachers training. As a result, they were a local uh, young woman and young men, not unlike the parents coming out of the community representing their standards, who were the public school teachers. And that continued for some time. Then uh, teachers' training schools began. The normal schools. The the normal schools, as they used to be called, began to create a different type of teacher. As a matter of fact, the first teachers' uh, seminary, as they called it, that was created by Horace Mann. Yes. The two major subjects were phrenology and the whole word method of teaching. That was the very first (laughs) government-controlled teachers' college. They immediately went in the wrong direction. Phrenology, of course, was the forerunner of psychology. Yes, and Horace Mann believed totally in phrenology. Uh, Mumps on the head told you what the character and aptitude of the person was. That's right. If you had a high forehead, you were intelligent, you know, or something like that. I used to have, I probably misplaced and lost them, a couple of uh, small-sized phrenological charts. Yes. yes. And uh, they were really funny. A friend of mine that has a porcelain skull, you know, a oh, yes, skull I remember head with all of the uh, traits, yes. the different amativeness, right, uh, yeah. that sort of thing. They actually believed that parts of the brain were responsible for specific yes. personality traits. I mean, there's no scientific basis to it, no. but they believed it. It was a religious faith. Well, it's the same with modern psychology. That's there's right. no scientific mm-hmm. basis to any of it, and yet... It permeates our society. Just yeah. as reliable as chicken moons and tea leaves. <laughs> exactly. You would think that this so-called modern age with our high technology would be a little more scientific no. than it is. But uh, it's just ridiculous. Well, Horace Mann attacked the schools of Massachusetts. He tried to present them as incompetent. He worked to destroy the Latin schools and destroyed all but the Boston Latin school, which still survives, although now finally I hear it's going downhill. Do you know anything, Sam? You taught there once, didn't you? No, no, I I didn't teach there, but they have uh, what's happened to those with affirmative action, you see where they had to lower the standards for entrance. Mm-hmm. It was considered the elite school, a test school. You had to take a mm-hmm. test to get into it. As a matter of fact, there's a white uh, girl who passed the test very well, but she was not admitted because uh, of affirmative action. And her father has sued the school, so that's a big case in our area. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how that, that pans out. Incidentally, there's one other topic that uh, you might be interested in. You've heard of ADD, haven't you? Attention Deficit Disorder. I'm often asked by parents, you know, well, what causes it? And I suspect that a lot of it has to do with the the configuration of today's classrooms. As you recall, Rush, when you and I were going to school, we sat in desks that were bolted to the floor in rows, and our attention was focused on the teacher who sat right. up front. And the walls were pretty bare in those classrooms. Mm-hmm. You didn't have all the distractions or anything. You, maybe a picture of George Washington yes. or something like that. And we were all taught the same thing. Mm-hmm. You didn't have an individual education plan. So there was no way that you could have an attention deficit no. in that kind of a classroom. You couldn't even talk to your fellow students. Mm-hmm. That was considered a no-no. So... 
ADD was unknown in those days. Well, now if you walk into today's first grade classrooms, what do you find? You find the kids are seated around little tables. They're chatting with one another, pestering one another, uh, you know, communicating. Uh, the teacher is wandering around the room. She's no longer the focus of attention. She's a facilitator. The walls are crammed with every picture of a dinosaur you can imagine, you know. Uh, there's talking, there's distraction, and then they say, why can't you concentrate? Mm -hmm. Well, how could any child concentrate in such an atmosphere? Yeah. So if the child can't concentrate, they say, well, you've got attention deficit disorder. I mean, any normal child would find it impossible to concentrate in such an atmosphere. And yet the child then is designated, you know... Uh, defective. Defective, exactly. And then is put on Ritalin or some other drug or, or something like that to turn him into a little zombie. And uh, uh, But then you get, they, they say, well, my child was ADD from, the, from birth, you know, we know. And usually I tell people like that, well, yeah, some children are born more hyperactive than others. Some children are very physical. I mean, if they were not so, you wouldn't have Hollywood stuntmen. You wouldn't have daredevil flyers. You wouldn't have uh, you wouldn't have athletes. You wouldn't have all these people who can do these these incredible physical feats. I mean, it's, it's, they've got to be born that way because certainly I can't do any of that stuff, you know. So what do you do with kids like that? Do you drug them and say that they're sick, or that they're abnormal, or there's something wrong with them? No. What you do is you live with them, and you encourage them to channel all of these energies into something that's productive or uh, or that'll make them happy you know if they want to become a star athlete that's their business but uh, uh, but the way the, the culture is going that any child who uh, exhibits this kind of uh, uh, super abundance of energy is labeled yes. uh, abnormal I encountered a situation in which a young man who had been uh, nationally prominent uh, as an athlete uh, had a son who uh, I think is seven or eight when I saw him takes after him and has all of his father's physical energy and what they've done is to require that he be drugged every day and they cannot tamper with that the prescription he's in a public school in a public it? school and the result is that that child is going to reach maturity having been drugged all through his childhood and youth yes that's a, a frightening fact uh, that's what, and it's going on all over the country yes. about two million children now mm -hmm. are on Ritalin and it's growing every day as a solution to a, you know, to a problem that uh, did exist when you and I were going yes. to school. There was no dyslexia in those no. days, and there was no ADD in those days. Well, our time is just about up. Thank you, Sam. It's always a privilege and most stimulating when you come here and uh, fill us in on the most recent developments in education. Thank you, and God bless you, and God bless all of you who are listening. Use this knowledge to defend freedom. Thank you, and good night.